Good evening, everybody. First, a special thanks to Danny Trashman. He deserves it more. We say every morning, the people who say say every morning in Bricha Satyra. We bless the Tyra, we bless the ability to learn Tyra every morning. We say, Veniya Nachnu, that we, and our children, and our children's children, and all the children of the Jewish people. We all should know you, your name, and we should learn your Torah for its own sake, with a sincerity. We daven that not only should we be better people, our children, grandchildren, the future, the future of Kali Yisrael should be better. People all know the Torah and learn the Torah for its own sake. It's a similar prayer that said, when you light the candles at our shops. The question, the simple question is, okay, I want to have tall kids. I want Kali Yisrael's children to be smart. I want Kali Yisrael's children to be handsome. I want them to be special in some way. God-given gifts, God-given abilities. Things they don't have to work for. I can daven for that. But how am I davening for someone's intentions? How am I davening for someone to learn Torah, and not just learn Torah, and not just choose to learn Torah, and not just choose to be involved in Torah and Yerushalayim and Yiddishkai, but I want them to do it l'shma, with sincerity, for the sake of the Torah, the Ramah writes for the love of Hashem, as others write for the Torah's own sake, whatever that means. How am I davening for someone's intentions? How am I davening for someone else to think a certain way and behave a certain way? How can I take away a person's bechira? How can I daven to take away a person's free choice? It's a question that's bothered many for a long time, and we're not going to hear the answer from me tonight because I certainly don't have the answer. But you see clearly that there are families, there are people who dedicate their lives. They, they dedicate their lives, their children, their grandchildren, their parents, their grandparents dedicate their lives for the pure dissemination of Torah. And those successful people do it because they, they disseminate the Torah, they teach the Torah, they're involved in the Torah, they learn the Torah for the sake of the Torah and for their love of Hashem. Our esteemed speaker tonight, Rabbi Shai Shachter from Woodmere and from everywhere else, is not only someone who I've had the pleasure of knowing for 20 plus years, I think it is already, someone who is dedicated, who disseminates Tyra with a crystal clarity and an ability and uses all of his God-given gifts and chooses to share Hashem's Tyra with Kali Yisrael in the clearest, most precise, and most palatable way. Of course, we know he's a son of Maran Hagoyim and Herschel Shachter Shritev and Nadeli Adar, and Malam Akkadishol. His grandfather, Abelach Shechter, was Rashiva Nwayu as well, and his other grandfather, Barnashai Shapiro, were all people, Rashiva Teravadas, were all people who spent their entire lives teaching, spent their entire lives sharing, and spent their entire lives making all of us, all of Kali Yisrael, better, more learned, and more close to the Rabbi Mishnah. So without further ado, uh, the Sion and himself, someone who is remarkable in his ability, I'll pass Rabbi Shachter to say a few 
Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Schreiber, and thank you, Danny, for putting together such a beautiful evening. This is really, really special, and it's amazing to be here in Kuznets, and it's a uh, great opportunity for me to meet all of you here on the Upper West Side and some familiar faces. Nice to see some of you, and great to meet the ones who are new faces, and I hope to have many, many future opportunities to join in this really special and wonderful endeavor. So I thank you, and I told Tamar that I know that she was profusely thanking me for coming, but... Just so you should know, it's not so out of my way. I was in Stern College teaching anyway. It's not so far. So uh, I just came over here from there. And it's really a pleasure to share with all of you. So I was asked to talk this evening about some thoughts about the upcoming holiday, about the upcoming Yom Tif, and something that we can consider as we go into the celebration of Purim. First of all, Purim is an anomaly in so many different ways. Number one, when the Ramam talks about Purim, he says, very famously, says the Rambam, that all of the different Sifri Anavim, all the Sifri Atanach are going to become obsolete. They're going to become irrelevant in the times of the coming of Mashiach, except for Megillah Esther. How strange. What is so unique? What is so different? What is so special about Megillah Esther? And why is it that Megillah Esther in some way is considered more important than Yeshaya Hanavi and Yecheskel Hanavi, where we're no longer going to be studying their words? It's Asidinli Batali Mos HaMashiach. Really? They're no longer going to be relevant? What is so compelling about Megillah Esther? And the Ramam says, the answer is, Says the Rambam, these are days, the celebration of Purim is something that will be of eternal nature. It's something that is important to us even after Mashiach will come. And we have to understand what is so unique about Purim. Why is Purim so special? Why is Purim put in a category and a league of its own? Where not only that, the Gemara tells us as well in Megillah Daf Yudalit, there were a definitive number of Nevi'im, of prophets, who lived in the Jewish community. This wasn't an endless source of Nevuah that existed in the Jewish people. So the Gemara tells us that there were 48 Nevi'im, 48 male Nevi'im, 7 female Nevi'os, a Navi does not have a right to add on to the laws of the Torah. A Navi does not have a right to take away from the laws of the Torah. And the only thing that was added by any of the Nevi'im was this idea of celebrating Purim, of Mikra Megillah. So what is so special? There's something that obviously is very unique. Now the Rambam outlines for us what exactly we're supposed to be thinking. What are the primary objectives when reading the Megillah? We're all going to go out of our way, even if we have a busy work schedule, we're going to come home, at night and during the day. And as the Gemara says, we have a separate obligation. I, I was so shocked to learn that this is not obvious to everyone, so that's why I'm making mention of it. About two years ago I had, or maybe, no, it was pre-COVID, so maybe it was three or four years ago, I don't remember, but somebody in my shul called me and said, you know, I heard the Megillah last night, so I'm off for the day. And they told me that they had never been aware of the fact that there was a separate obligation to read the Megillah at night and to read it once again during the day. So much so that it seems from the formulation of the Gemara that the reading of the Megillah during the day is almost more important than the reading of the Megillah at night. The Gemara says we have to read the Megillah. So this is something that we have an obligation to read the Megillah both at night and during the day. Now, 
For many of us, we probably are going to go to a very efficient Mikra Megillah, wherever it's going to be. You're going to be here? Fastest. Fastest. Best place to be. Okay, so I'm sure many of us are going to go to whatever minion suits us and whatever place is going to allow us to be Mekayim the Mitzvah properly and to make sure that we hear every word. So wherever that's going to be, many of us are probably going to have 25 minutes. How long is the Mikra Megillah here? 25? Less? 30 minutes, right? You go to a longer, it's going to be 40 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever it may be. But that's it. 30 minutes at night, 40 minutes at night, 30 minutes during the day, and then we move on. And how often do we spend time thinking about what is the objective of reading the Megillah? What are we supposed to take away from this? What are we supposed to be thinking about? What is this supposed to be doing and impacting for all of us moving forward? So the Ramam actually formulates it for us. And as we know, on Purim, we have a number of obligations. Mikra Megillah is only one of them. We have Mishlach Manas, Matanus Le'avionim, Sudas Purim. We have to make sure that we have some kind of plan, some kind of arrangement for all of those four mitzvahs. But when it comes to Mikra Megillah in particular, the Ramam writes in his introduction to the Minyan HaMitzvahs, he says as follows, Hanavim and Beis Dino, Tiknu Vitzivu Likra Megillah Ba'onasa. The instruction of the Nevi'im was that we should read the Megillah in its proper time, which means on Purim. And if you live in certain communities, you read it on one day. Other communities, you read it on a different day. Be it as it may, the Ramam says, what is the reason? Why do we read the Megillah? Why was this important for us to institute? And why does the Ramam say that even the Mos HaMashiach, this is going to be something that is so critical, that is so important for us to remember? Says the Ramam, Kidei lahazkir shvachav shel Baruch Hu. Number one, it is in order that we should have the opportunity to be reminded of the Shevach, the virtue, the praise of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Let us remember the Purim story. Let us remember how grateful we need to be for the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu saved us. But if that were the case, there are many other stories throughout Tanakh that we can read that would also give us the opportunity to do that. And therefore the Ramam says it is not only that. It is not limited to only giving us an opportunity to extol the virtues of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but also on top of that, Hayakarov Lashavosenu. Don't forget, says the Rambam. We should always remind ourselves that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is there to listen to our suffering. Karov Lashavosenu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is there and listening and attentive and sympathetic to all the different situations that we go through, even the most difficult and painful ones, which is really the mood of what was going on in the Purim story. And third, says the Rambam, Says the Rambam, three objectives when we read the Megillah. Number one, it's in order that we should have an opportunity to praise HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Number two, says the Rambam, we should remember that he is Karav L'Shav Seinu, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is there listening to us even when we're going through very difficult personal times. Number three, to give us an opportunity to praise him, which is similar to number one. But the Ramam says, don't ever forget, and this is how he ends it. Don't ever forget that HaKadosh Baruch Hu promised us, every time we reach out to him, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is there to listen to us and to be attentive. And don't ever forget that HaKadosh Baruch Hu listens and he responds. And that is what Mikar Megillah is really meant to be all about. I often think when we come to Lel Purim, or during the day of Purim, and we listen to the Megillah, we have the mistaken impression that the entire story unfolded in a short span of time, 25, 30 minutes, so maybe it took about two or three months, but that really is a big mistake. 
This is not really what happened at all. And when you look at the Megillah in the context of the way we read it, so we can have that impression, like everything fits into a puzzle and everything really makes sense. But the truth is, when you take a step back and you understand, how long did this protracted narrative actually take for it to all play out? It seems, if you look through the Midrashim, it seems it was at least eight or nine years, perhaps even longer. This was not something that at the time that it was actually unfolding was clear to anyone what the outcome was going to be. At the time that the story was unfolding, this was an extremely tense time. It was at the time of the Persian Gullus. It was a time of Nobe Samigdash. It was a time when Achashverosh was making a party on a simple level to celebrate the fact that the Jewish people would never have the ability to return to Yerushalayim and build their own base on Migdash, never have sovereignty over their own land. That was the celebration. We lay in the Megillah Vikelim, Mikelim Shonim. We lay in the tune of Eicha because we're reminded of the fact that Achashverosh used the vessels of the base on Migdash to show and to demonstrate that the Jewish people will never go back, that we are stuck in exile. Nobody knew that the end of the story was going to be how it panned out. That was not clear from the beginning. That was not clear from the outset at all. And this was a very dark and difficult time, living through the genocide of Haman and thinking about the fact, who would have imagined that that wasn't going to actually be the reality? For all intents and purposes, the Jews assumed that this was the end. It was the final solution. And there have been many over the millennia of Jewish history who have tried and attempted to do the same. But there was no reason to believe that Haman was not going to be successful. In retrospect, we look in history and we see that he was not successful. But the truth is, we ask ourselves, what was to make them believe that he was not going to be successful at the time? Nothing at all. Haman was the, I guess, the second in command in the most powerful country in the world, Sheva Ve'esra Mumea Medinos, and yet Haman was given free reign to do whatever he wanted. And somehow in the end, Ben in the most unusual of circumstances. Who could have ever imagined that that was going to happen? But at the time, this was an extremely difficult, difficult, morbid, depressing time for the Jewish people. You know, there's a fascinating medrash where the medrash talks about a number of different premeditated murderers who all looked at each other and tried to compare notes to figure out what mistake did the one before us make that made them fail at their plan of trying to destroy something. So we start, who is the first murderer in the pages of Chumash? Cain. Now, who does Cain murder? His brother Hevel. Why does he murder his brother? Again, we're not going to get into all the details of why, but on a simple level, it seems, Cain and Hevel both offer a karba. Cain and Hevel both want to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but Cain is jealous of his brother Hevel. Hevel was accepted, Cain was not. And Cain sees that there's a competition there with his brother, and he decides, you know what, let me just eliminate the competition. And he kills his brother. Along comes Asaph, and he too has a brother who is causing him a lot of anxiety. Asaph has a brother who he really does not like, a brother who he abhors, and he tries to figure out, what can I do to him? Well, let me look back in history, says the Medrash, and let me learn from what those before me did when they had a competition. So he looks back in history and he sees Cain kills his brother Hevel. The problem is Cain made a little bit of a mistake. Cain didn't realize that although he eliminated his competition, that was only a temporary fix because his parents were still alive. And so long as his parents were alive, they were able to then have another child. And that's in fact exactly what happens. What happens? Adam and Chava have another child. What do they name him? Shays. Why do they name him Shays? The Torah says, 
because HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us another child in the place as a replacement for Hevel who was killed. So now Cain has a problem. Esav says, I'm not going to make that mistake. You know what I'm going to do? Yikaru yimei evalavi v'aharga asafi. Let me wait until my father dies and then I will murder my brother. And then I will kill my brother. But it's not worth it to do that beforehand because my father is still alive. If I do this while my father is alive, maybe he will have another child and then my competition is back. Interesting, right? Not the pshat you learned in school. Rashi tells us on Chumash, a very famous medrash, much more famous than this one. Why was it that Esau decided to wait until his father died in order to kill his brother? What? Sympathy for? His father. What a tzaddik. Esau is such amazing kibbut of aim. He's so sympathetic to the feelings of his father and he feels so sorry for him. So let me wait until my father dies and then I will kill my brother. This Medrash says, perhaps there's an alternative understanding. The reason why Esav waited is not because he was such a great tzaddik, and it's not because he was so concerned and worried about his father's feelings and his sensitivities, but rather because he was concerned that his father is going to have another child, and that his competition is back. Well, what he didn't factor into the equation was the following. He waited along all those years until his father died, but in the meantime, his brother Yaakov gets married, has children of his own, those children then get married, have children of their own. By the time Yitzchak Avinu dies, the family is so large, he can't get rid of them. Along comes Paral and he says, All of them got it wrong because, look, the Jewish problem is still here. We can't get rid of them. Obviously, we have to devise a new plan. And therefore, he says, We're not waiting around for anyone. We're killing every Jewish male the moment they are born. Because we are not going to make the same mistake that Cain made, nor will we make the same mistake that Esav made. We are going to make sure, and that will be the final solution. Where was he flawed? We are still here. <coughs> Writes the Medrash. Along comes Haman, and he reviews all of the activity that happened leading up to his generation. And he looks at the story of Cain and Hevel, he looks at the story of Yaakov and Esav, and he looks at the story of Paro and the Jewish people, and he realizes something needs to change, we need to devise a new plan, because obviously this isn't working. And he says, as we say in the Megillah, the simple understanding of that line is, the Jewish people run by their own set of laws. I'm sure many of you in the corporate world have difficulty explaining to your colleagues why you're leaving on an early Shabbos at a certain time. And they're like, what are you, you're making up the rules? So this week is 3.30 and next week it's 4.30 and then the following week is going to be at 5.30. How do you explain this? And now you're going to tell me you're taking off Purim and you're taking off Hanukkah and you're taking off Shavuos and it's two days Yantav in America and, three, and one day Yantav in Israel. What is this? The same Shonos Mikalam, we have a different set of laws, different set of rules. It's hard to explain it. That's really what Haman meant. But perhaps the Medrash explains the same Shonos Mikalam is referring to one Halacha, that in the Jewish community defines the future of Jewish community and Jewish continuity. And what is that? How do we define nationhood in the Jewish peoples in our religion? Well, Paro misunderstood. Paro miscalculated. Paro said, Let me keep the women alive because they'll intermarry anyway. And if they're going to intermarry, all they'll have is Egyptian children, and we're fine. Haman came along and said, That was a mistake. Because the Jewish people have a different set of laws, and one of those laws is that nationhood is determined not by the father, but rather by the mother. And therefore, Haman devises a new plan, which is, 
We're not going to take any chances. We're going to murder every Jew from the moment they are born, both male and female, because keeping the women alive is not going to help our cause. You look at that story and you ask yourself, where did Haman go wrong? We're still here. So what was wrong with that calculation? It seems to have been correct. Well, the Medrash adds a final link to the story. In the end of days, the Medrash tells us, not exactly clear what this is a description of, but there's some kind of terrible time that's going to come of Melchemes Gogumagog, a lot of conflicting Midrashim trying to understand exactly what this is and when that time is going to be. But be it as it may, we have some kind of understanding that there's going to be a very difficult time for the Jewish people that's referred to as Melchemes Gogumagog. And they look back and review all those who came before them who attempted to destroy the Jewish people and failed. And they're trying to learn from their mistakes. And they finally come to the following conclusion. And they say, the problem is, so long as the Jewish people are still connected to Avim Shabashamayim, there is no possibility that he will allow for them to be destroyed. So what we need to do is come up with a new plan, and that is, let us destroy the connection that the Jewish people share with Avim Shabashamayim. And then we will successfully get rid of the Jewish people. Anybody here who says Tehillim, you may not have gotten too far, but if you look later in the second parak of Tehillim, the, the Mepharshim there explained that that is a reference to the Melchemes Gogumagog in many different references there in the Psukim. And what they mean to say is, this Pasuk and this Medrash is referring to the same thing. The Pasuk in the second parak of Tehillim writes, Ninatka Rosemo, Avosemo. What does that mean? We are going to break the bonds. We will cut the cable, cut the cords that connect HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that connect God with the Jewish people. And then we will successfully be able to destroy them. That is the ultimate plan, to break the bond that we have, that we share with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And what does the next Pesach in Tehillim say? Yoshe Bashamayim Yishak Hashem Yilag Lama. HaKadosh Baruch Hu laughs because that is an impossibility. And that, says the Ramam, is what we need to think about as we read the Megillah. It is an impossibility. Bechol kareinu love. every time that we have something difficult, every time that we have a predicament, either a communal or a personal, we have an opportunity to be reminded that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is always there and that He's always willing to listen and He's always willing to be attentive to what our needs actually are. And that imagination of trying to figure out how to break that cable and break that bond and make sure that there is no relationship between the Jewish people and Aviyam Shabashamayim is an utter impossibility. Think about the story of Esther, and I think about it every year, when you have young children who are dressing up as Queen Esther, and it's so cute and it's so sweet, and we all smile and we all you know, take pictures, and it's really something that's very beautiful. But think about how tragic Esther's life actually was. Think about how tragic her life actually was. If I were to imagine what Esther actually looked like, I don't know, but I would imagine she was a very Edel Beis Yaakov girl who grew up in a, a very religious home, who's married to the undisputed Godel Ador, Mordechai Hatzadik, who also was a family member of hers. And she's this wonderful, sweet, amazing woman who the last and furthest thing from her mind is to ever end up being married to this 
absolute madman, who, by the way, let's not forget, just killed his last wife, who was actually an aristocrat from a very prestigious family. So what chance is she ever going to have? Which is why the Medrash tells us that when they came to her and they offered her all of the skin treatments and all the ointments, she refused because the last thing she wanted was to be chosen. Which Jewish woman wants to live, first of all, with this non-Jewish man, especially on top of that knowing what a madman that he is? Of course, the last thing from her mind is that she should be ending up in the palace of power. And what ends up happening? What ends up happening is that, of course, as we know, and the Gemara tells us as well, Esther Yirak Rakas Haisa, it doesn't mean that she was green. Yarok means green, but it means she had a complexion that was obviously not appealing on its own, which is why she should have taken the treatments, but she chose not to. She did not want to look attractive in front of Achashverosh. She wanted that she should look repulsive to him. She wanted that he should turn his eyes and look at someone else and choose a different woman to be his queen, but yet Esther Hamalka, against all odds, is chosen. This is not at all anything that she ever imagined being a part of. And then the Megillah tells us that Mordechai warns her, Ain Esther Mogedes Moladeta. Esther, do not say where you're from. Do not say anything about your origins. I can imagine. What did that dinner table look like every night? So Achashverosh comes to dinner and he sits down with his queen and he's trying to get to know her. And he says, you know, just curious, where did you grow up? I have no recollection. Which school did you go to? Did you have any friends? I'm in such awe from you, king. I can't even respond. Okay, so maybe you get away with that for the first week or two or month or six months. Then what? Every single night? Anybody here in the field of psychology? would imagine somebody is. No? Somebody came over to me before. So somebody must be. You are. Okay. So... You ever dealt with someone who has a split personality, right? Somebody who has to live this kind of double life and I'm trying to live as a Jew in private and then in public I have to be careful and then I have to make sure not to tell my own husband who I'm living an intimate life with, I have to make sure not to divulge any secrets. Can you imagine what kind of life that is? Imagine what's going through the turmoil that's going through her mind. Then we say later on as the Megillah progresses, avadati avadati. And that is laned also in the tune of Echa. Why is that laned in the tune of Echa? Because that was the saddest moment of Esther's marriage to Achashverosh. All this time, the Gemara tells us, Esther was an Anusa. I didn't want to be involved in this relationship. She did not choose to cheat on her husband and go live with someone else. She was chosen. She had no choice at all. She would have been killed had she denied Achashverosh this privilege of being married to her. But at this moment, when Esther voluntarily offers of herself to go into Ahasuerus and to be intimate with him, all to save the Jewish people, she realizes, even if I ever get out of this misery, I can never return back to my husband. Because now, this is no longer a case of an Anusa. This is ra- rather a woman who's living with another man, Biratzel. And that is why we read that line, in the tune of Eicha, where now she's stuck forever. She will never get out of this horrific reality that she's in. So much so that the Medrash says, as she's going into the inner chambers of Ahasuerosh, and she's terrified, and she's about to plead on behalf of the Jewish people, and everything's about to come out, and Ahasuerosh is about to find out all of her secrets, and this can be the end. 
As she's moving further and further into the chambers of that palace, says the Medrash, Suddenly, even our Kaddish Baruch Hu leaves her. Can you imagine? Until this point, she says, you know, at least I have my husband. Now she lost her husband because she knows I can never go back to him. I'm all alone. I'm segregated from the Jewish community. I have no connection any longer. At least I have God. At least I have a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Now at this moment, Nistalka Haimena of Ruach HaKodesh. Medrash writes at that moment, even HaKadosh Baruch Hu left her. And she responds, Keli, Keli, Lama Azavtani. How have you left? The Medrash then writes further, it doesn't stop there. She makes an argument to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Sarah Imena, we're all familiar with the story. Ayyadeh Nishbaz Laila Achas. Sarah Imena was taken captive one night. And as a result of that, we saw the wrath of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. She was abused one time. And look what the Rebona Shalom did in response. And Esther Amalka says, Here I am being abused and raped every single night. And here I am stuck under the clutches of this madman who I don't want to be with. And you ignore me. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is nowhere to be found. How do you explain that? How does one make sense out of this? Kaylee, Kaylee, Lama Azavtani. So when I think about that story of Esther Hamalka, and we'll close with this, how is it that somebody going through such a tragic set of circumstances, such a lonely existence, can somehow pull it all together and do what needs to be done on behalf of the Jewish people? How do you do that? It's very hard to function when a person feels lonely, when they feel they have no support. And the story of the Megillah, like the Vilna Gon famously commented, the Gemara says, Somebody who reads the Megillah out of order. So if you read one chapter out of order, you're not going to fulfill your mitzvah because it's a sequence. The story has to be read in order in order to be able to appreciate how it unfolded. But the Vilna Gon commented, perhaps what it means, Hakoris and Megillah Lamafreya means if you read the Megillah and you think all the messages of the Megillah are only from thousands of years ago, Lamafreya, and you think it's not relevant to today, Lo Yatza, you have missed the entire opportunity of what Purim is all about for us. We read the Megillah and we put ourselves in the shoes of Esther and you ask yourself, do I ever feel that way? Are there ever experiences in my life where I'm made to feel the same way? where I feel everybody has left me and no one understands me at all, and I'm all alone in the world, and nobody really has the ability to tap into the innermost feelings that I have right now, and even sometimes it feels as if HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself has left me. That's the story of Esther HaMalka. And it's the story of so many since. I go to Camp Simcha every summer, and Toba, it's a privilege to see you, but it's... It's something that pains me so deeply when we go in the summer and there are campers who come to talk and they open up their hearts and they say about the lonely existence that they have being on chemotherapy and I'm just a child and I don't expect to be living in a hospital. I should be running around in a playground with my friends. But more than that is when they start asking questions on the Rebona Shalom himself and they say, where is God? How can this be? And what have I done? And how is he not helping me? And how does he allow me to be in this situation? So there are many in different circumstances, in different situations, 
some more severe, some less. It doesn't make a difference. Who feel the same as Esther Hamalka. So how does she have the strength? How does she have the fortitude? What makes her have that ability to be able to put one foot in front of the other and do what needs to be done and save the Jewish people? And the answer perhaps is based on a comment of Rav Hirsch where he writes a very fascinating comment that he applies to a number of different situations in Chumash. As we know, Rav Hirsch often in his commentary on Chumash talks about the etymology of words and tries to compare and contrast different words with each other. And he says, perhaps if we take this Pasuk that Esther Amalka says, Keli, Keli, Lama Azavtani, we just change the articulation of that Pasuk ever so slightly, we can have an understanding as to what it is. Esther Hamalka realized I have a choice in front of me. I can sit for the rest of my life and I can say, Keli, Keli, Lama Azavtani. God, why this and why that? And why me? And it's so unfair. And what did I ever do to deserve this? And why is it that so many others are living a life and seemingly being very successful and I'm stuck where I am? And I can spend an entire lifetime being busy with these questions and never finding any answers. And that's where I will remain. But I can shift the articulation of that question ever so slightly and I can have an entirely new perspective. And instead of asking, Kaylee, Kaylee, Lama Azavtani, I can ask myself, Kaylee, Kaylee, Lima Azavtani. This is the reality of my life right now. Instead of asking those questions of why, which is the knee jerk response of so many people who are going through a difficult time, let me shift that perspective so slightly and ask myself, If this is where I am, let me ask myself, what is the purpose of my being here? Why does HaKadosh Baruch Hu want me to be here? What is there for me to accomplish? We wake up every morning and we believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a tremendous amount of faith in us. And that is why He created us. That's why He gave us another day of life. Look around the world and see how many there are every day that don't wake up in the morning, that don't have the ability to live life. And we are blessed to be here every day. It's only because HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a tremendous amount of faith in what it is that we can do, regardless of the circumstance. If that is the case, then we have the ability to turn around and ask ourselves not those questions of why this and why that, but rather, for what? What is the purpose? What is the mission? What is my destiny? If this is where I am, and this is the situation that I find myself, what am I going to do with that? How do I change my fate and turn it into my destiny? That is the question that Esther Hamalka asked herself, and it takes a tremendous amount of courage for somebody to be able to do that. But that, perhaps, is what allowed her to have the strength and the courage and the ability to move forward, even though she was facing the most horrific of circumstances. This is what we think about among so many other themes as we consider what the holiday of Purim means to all of us in our generation. To read the Megillah this year and not understand that there's some kind of relevance to the lives that all of us live would be a wasted opportunity. For us to look through the Megillah and see how it pertains to us would be something that would be so meaningful and so special. Perhaps as we walk away from the story or as we are about to engage the story next week, 
we have an opportunity to think about ourselves and to ask ourselves that question. How often is it in life that when we go through a difficult time, a difficult patch, we have something that personally or communally or nationally makes us have sleepless nights, difficult times, makes us wonder, where is HaKadosh Baruch Hu? We have that choice and we have that ability to ask ourselves whether we are framing the question properly. Are we asking the question of why this and why that? Or are we rather spending our time asking the question in a very different formulation? And that could be not keli keli lama azavtani, but rather keli keli lema azavtani. It is my hope that we all have the opportunity to experience v'nahafachu this year, as in many years prior. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has the ability to make miracles. Ki niflos. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has the ability to make miracles happen on a moment's notice. And we ask that the Ribbona Shalolam should send all of us, all of us who are looking for some kind of Yeshua, many of us in the same way, many of us in different kinds of ways. Everybody has their own personal story. Everybody has their own personal journey. And we're all looking for different things. And we all need so much from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It should be our collective tefillah, this Purim, that the Ribbono Shalolam, the same as he did by Yamim Mahaim, Bazman Hazer, should be able to show us his miracles, should be able to express and exhibit to all of us his ability to perform a Hapahu in all of our lives and show us meaning and purpose in the experiences of life that he gives us every single day that we are privileged to be here. So thank you so much for coming. I wish all of you a wonderful evening. It was a pleasure to learn together. And I wish all of you the greatest of success and a freilich and purim. All the very best.